Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Looking for a new podcast to listen to with spooky season fast approaching? Then look no further because I've got the perfect show for you. National Park After Dark, a podcast that brings together the macabre material and a love for the outdoors. People from all over the world are visiting national parks in record numbers, and for good reason. These places are brimming with beauty and inspire reconnection with our wild world. But with more and more people entering our parks, more and more of them never leave. Join hosts Cassie and Danielle every Monday as they enter a new park to explore its beauty and its darkness. Our national parks hold tales of murder, animal attacks, fatal accidents, miraculous survival, and much, much more. Check out National Park After Dark, created for the morbid outdoor enthusiasts wherever you listen to podcasts. And remember to enjoy the view, but watch your back. There were two more murders 15 miles away. When police arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a weird homicide. The scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird... You should never underestimate a person's bravery. On September 10th, 1988, a young girl was found dead in front of her Salt Lake City home. A girl who, though it would take years to find out, died doing the bravest thing that she could do. Fought for her life. So if you like your coffee hot but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. Anna Palmer was the typical 10-year-old girl living in Salt Lake City, Utah. She had a ton of friends, a loving family, adored her pets, and made sure to follow her mother's rules the best that she could, especially those created to ensure her safety. On September 8, 1988, at around 5 p.m., Anna called over to her mother's work and asked if she could go outside and play with the neighborhood kids. In a time where kids spent most of their time playing outside in their safe neighborhood, where everyone knew everyone, this wasn't a strange request. So her mother said yes, and Anna headed on her way, knowing that as long as she got home before dark, one of her mother's rules, she would be safe. But by the time Nancy clocked out of work and started her commute, Anna had still not called to say that she had made it home. At around 7 p.m., Nancy Palmer walked up to her driveway and onto her porch to find the body of her 10-year-old daughter. Her face, quote, pale and yellow due to lack of blood flow. Panicked, she tried to perform CPR on the fifth grader, calling 911 in the process, but she soon realized that there was a deep hole in the middle of Anna's throat. Dispatchers instructed her to put her hand over the hole and continue CPR until paramedics arrived a few minutes later. She was rushed to the hospital where, unfortunately, she was pronounced dead. In fact, an autopsy would later determine that, after being sexually assaulted and stabbed five times, Anna had been dead for quite some time by the time Nancy arrived home. One of those stab wounds had severed her spinal cord. When the news spread of her horrific death, the Salt Lake City community started their way through the seven stages of grief 
right along with Nancy Palmer. Shock and denial that such a thing could happen in their idyllic community, grief that they couldn't keep their children safe like they once believed, and finally settled on anger and fear that some man had tarnished their slice of paradise. Seeking retribution to make their children did not meet the same fate. Homicide detectives immediately made their way to Anna's neighborhood and began canvassing. They found the circumstances of her case particularly bizarre because if the time of death was correct, Anna was abducted near a busy intersection in broad daylight. So if that was the case, how did almost all of their interviews seem to lead to a dead end? At least all of the interviews with adults in the neighborhood. Working with what they had, they created a timeline of events and figured out that the last person to see Anna alive was her friend, Loxanne Kosavin. The friends had spent most of the evening swimming in a park when they noticed the sun quickly make its way past the tree line. Realizing that dark was coming soon, just a little bit before 7 p.m., Anna and Loxanne made their way back to their nearby homes. That's when they noticed a man following very closely behind them. Taught stranger danger in school and home, the girls allowed the man to pass them silently. Loxanne would later remember a moment just after he brushed past them when he turned his head slightly and seemed to glare at Anna. Brushing off the incident, the girls made a pit stop at the yard of another friend who had just gotten a new kitten. Loxanne then made her way back home in a different direction. But by this point, Anna seemed to have been joined by the stranger the girls saw while leaving the park. According to 14-year-old Amy Johnson, the girl with the kitten, the man quote, creeped her out, saying, I looked back and Anna was walking home and he was still walking behind her like a crazy person. I looked again and no one was there. This was the last time anyone saw Anna Palmer alive and well. With the help of the girls' descriptions, police finally had a good idea of what the assailant must look like and decided to go back to the adults, who were now reporting to seeing a man lurking around the area earlier in the day looking either drugged or drunk. The problem was, no one knew exactly who this man was. All they knew was that a stranger was skulking around their neighborhood. Over 200 people were interviewed, including every sex offender in the area. But no one fit the profile enough to garner an arrest. And despite what seemed like a promising lead and an $11,000 reward, the case of Anna Palmer started to grow cold. For years, questions about Anna and her killer consumed members of her community. But with no leads, very little evidence, and no science to test the evidence that they had, the identity of her killer remained a mystery for about 13 years. Then in 2009, detectives taking a fresh look at the case took notice of some particularly useful information. You see, all those years ago, Anna didn't simply lay down and let the stranger attack her. No, the 10-year-old girl fought off this man with every last bit of strength she had. And though it didn't save her life, it did leave some clues behind that contained her killer's DNA. Clues that, up until this fresh look, had been ignored due to lack of technology. So they sent off the samples to Sorensen Forensics, which included the clothing and body swabs taken at the time of her discovery. Then someone involved made the brilliant decision to actually take some of Anna's fingernails to get them tested. Something that wasn't typical, but they thought may just yield some results. They were right. 
It seemed that in her fight, Anna actually scratched the man who attacked her and his DNA was still wedged under her fingernails when they were clipped. DNA that belonged to a man named Matthew Breck, who at the time of her murder lived just a block away. 19 in 1988, Matt was a California native who moved to Utah with his brother so he could find some steady employment and get some direction for his life. Instead, his chance at a fresh start was squandered when Matt filled his day with drinking and picking fights with anyone who looked at him sideways. He was also known to carry around a collection of knives with him and would show them off to anyone who showed any interest. In fact, around the time that Anna was murdered, Matt was charged with a violent felony, but had the charge lowered to a misdemeanor. He served a short jail stint and his DNA was never collected. Once out of jail, he made his way to Idaho where his behavior only seemed to escalate. Soon, he wound up in prison for two years on a burglary charge and shortly after his 2001 release, was picked up on a molestation charge and sent off for a longer sentence. It was at this point that his sample was entered into CODIS, where Salt Lake City investigators would get their hit eight years later. When interviewed, Matt admitted to living in the neighborhood at the time of the murder, but claimed he knew nothing about it. But with the DNA clearly pointing to him as their only suspect, there was no way Matt was getting out of this. He was extradited back to Salt Lake City and charged with first-degree murder, and aggravated sexual abuse of a child. He pled guilty in 2001 to ensure that he was not given the death penalty. He was given life and remains behind prison walls. Matt Breck, a man who, had Anna not bravely fought for her life, would have been released from prison within two years and may still be walking freely amongst innocent men, women, and especially children. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to hear what terrible thing happened on September 11th. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe.